Welcome to the Startups Roundtable podcast, where we discuss the science and art of startups with founders and the broader startup community. I'm Tony Hackett, and I've spent over a third of my B2B sales career either working for early stage startups or as a go-to-market and social selling mentor for founders and their teams. In each episode, we will explore various topics, including decision-making, team-building, and growth strategies. Before we meet today's guest, I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Here in Sydney, it's the Gadigal people. We pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging, and extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people attending today. My guest at the Startups Roundtable is Peter Thomas. On this podcast, we speak with founders and those who form the startup ecosystem. Having Peter join me today gave us an opportunity to explore the topic of skills and workforce transformation, recognising that as the business world scrambles to adapt and reshape in the aftermath of the coronavirus, startups and their founders are not immune to this challenge. So let's get to it and meet Peter. Peter, thanks so much for joining me today. And I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to right now. My pleasure, Tony. Thank you. So my name is Peter Thomas, and I am director of Forward, which is the Center for Future Skills and Workforce Transformation, which is based in RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. Um, RMIT is what's called a dual sector university. So we teach traditional higher degrees and degrees, but we also have a very strong focus on vocational education. So the College of Vocational Education is the home for delivering all our skills-based programs, 156 programs across five industry clusters, anything from tradies to architects to nurses and interior designers. Peter, I must say the the coming together of us in this conversation today and your introduction uh, couldn't be more personal to me, by the way, having started my career I left school at 15, did an apprenticeship. And so to have started in that vocational world, and I must say, I believe that some of the richest learning that I experienced was through that apprenticeship period. And maybe we'll get to talk about that a little bit today, about what it means to be indentured and what it means to be tested and licensed and the like, but also to think about having that full sweep of educational opportunity, such a rich environment. And we've worked through or continue to work through this COVID era that we're in. We start to think about work from home and the like, and it's too easy to confuse work from home with the future of work. I wonder if you could just speak a little bit to your understanding of the future of work and how you would like us to be thinking about the future of work. Mm, That's a big question, and there's lots of ways of going at it. So to start, start where you started, which is the work from home thing is, I guess, been it's always been around. I mean, for many people, some people, of course, who have to be in places to do things, you know, so if you're an aircraft engineer, you've got to be where the aircraft are, so there's no working from home for you. But for the rest of us, I guess, and for many people, the kind of work from home has been going on for a long time. It's, you know, in small pieces for many people. So uh, driven, as we know, by the availability of technology, like the technology we're using today to do this podcast so we can do video and audio. It's just that it's kind of accelerated during the pandemic. I guess one of the things to kind of tease out here is the idea of that there is such a thing as the future of work. So I've been quite critical of that term, although I use it myself, that it's, and we wrote about it in our Medium blog where we we publish a lot of our stories about the work that we do, that, you know, the future is essentially unknowable. So, you know, trying to predict that is largely foolish. But what you can do is really examine some of the things that are going on right now in the work that we do and try and tease out some possible things, some possible influences that might change the way we work in the future. And there are quite a few of them. One of them being, 
as you point out, the places that we work. So the space I'm sitting in right now in RMIT University is a very curious space. It's perched atop the advanced manufacturing center. So downstairs from me are a whole load of lasers that I don't really understand. Um, and upstairs, we have our space, which is largely an experiment in the use of space. So we're doing what we call workplace making, which is to try and understand the new logic of space and how we work. So we're a team of seven or so portfolio workers that come together in and around the ideas. The space is just a vehicle for that, but we're trying to experiment deliberately in trying to change the nature of space. So you can't see, but around me are no desks and there are no workstations. There's just furniture, quite nice furniture created by a company called Winnie, an indigenous-owned furniture company that we use to try and it's it's lovely furniture to sit on and look at, but actually it's an experiment in the ways that we collaborate. So we've seen a noticeable difference in the ways that we behave because of the way we've created our workplace. And I guess that's what people have been doing at home when they've been confined to their homes during the various and long lockdowns in Melbourne and so elsewhere in the world, of course, is using space in a very different way. So one of the influences on the future of work, I think, will be the places where we work. And a more deliberate attention to try and craft those places to make us do and think the things that we want to think. So there's one aspect of the future work, but there are a bunch of others. And again, we've been writing about this pretty extensively. Another one, of course, is the nature of the work that we do and the ways that we do it. So as we know, technology has radically changed the way that we work. The thing that we're doing now wasn't possible maybe 30, 40 years ago in this form. It may have been possible if you had very expensive equipment, but the idea that we can hop on and record a podcast in incredible quality due to Zencaster is something that's only recently arrived. And all the other tools that surround us, you know, from anything from Microsoft 360, which is used by our institution, to the things that we use like Slack and Miro and Notion, all of those tools have radically changed the way that we work. And I think it's easy to see them merely as tools, but actually they really do profoundly affect the ways that we think and therefore the kind of work that we do. But future work is a big topic and there are countless millions of people speculating and pondering and building things to change the future of work. But my take on this is that the future is essentially unknowable. I mean, who would have predicted the pandemic in the way that it, it rolled out for us? Um, but actually, all you can do is kind of look deliberately and carefully about the things that are going on around you to try and understand a bit about what the clues are, what the weak signals are of things that we might want to tap into. And of course, it's changing rapidly. The bizarreness of the labor market right now is something that you know is going to go on for quite a long time. So my view of this is that we're not remotely out of the pandemic yet, although we may be out of some of the epidemiological effects. We certainly, maybe not, but we're certainly not out of the long tail of cognitive effects of the pandemic and its influence on work. It's interesting, Peter, you talk about tools and you talk about behaviours. I, I immediately think about not just behaviours, but the habits that we generate. And we could have the greatest technology and the most amazing built environment, but our habits will still keep us in a certain lane. So what you're tackling or looking to understand to tackle is as much a change program as anything else in having people think about the way that they will change their, their behaviours, their habits. How do you start like this? It, and I understand it is a question for the ages. So when I throw out the question about future of work, it's unfair, but you, you treated my question with, with dignity. So thank you. But then where do you think about this as a starting point? Or is it a case of it's too early to even find a starting point? And do I link back to your use of the word experimentation a little bit earlier? Interestingly, in the, in the meeting just before this meeting, I was talking to 
a colleague called Sam Sperlin, who's also about to join us as part of the RMIT Forward Fellowship Program. He's a, I don't know what he's really, he runs an outfit called The Ready, which is a consultancy based out of the US. But he's also been, we talked for a little while about one of his side projects, which is called Deliberate Patterns. And he says, and we were talking about this this morning, he says that habits are very hard things to form and you often lose them quite quickly. So you, it's a big change program to establish a new habit. And as we know, they can drop away quite quickly. He believes you should do much smaller experiments with your time called deliberate patterns. And deliberate patterns are things like you experiment with doing a small thing and see what effect it has on you. So for example, it could be, he's got a thing called a pattern, deliberate pattern library, which everybody can read about. And he says things like committing to journaling the end of your day for 10 minutes at the every, end of every day is a deliberate pattern that you can establish. And if it proves useful for you, then you can take something from it as part of a bigger mission of becoming more aware about your habits or about work or about whatever it might be. And so I think one of the, that's a really interesting insight, I think, that the idea that establishing a new habit is a hard thing. As we know, you know, establishing a habit to go to the gym every day is a pretty difficult thing for many people or establishing a habit not to eat, you know, all the chips in the cupboard, you know, because they're there but actually making very small behavioral changes that are relatively low cost in terms of your cognition and are relatively easy to do, but see them as experiments. You don't have to stick to them forever. You just have to see their value. So I think there's a whole range of things. I think one of the things to pull back to the question that we just talked about, about the future of work, one of the, the effects of the pandemic and our isolation in our homes and being forced to do things differently is it's thrown up a whole load of things we probably shouldn't have been doing in the first place. So a low, load of things which are unhealthy. Of course, it's also encouraged some other unhealthy things, which is, as we know, research tells us that people actually were more productive during lockdown. Companies saw an uplift in their productivity because people couldn't get away from their workspace. And so I think we're learning all kinds of interesting things about ourselves. So at one level, there's a lot of learning about the work and the future of work. But there's a lot of learning about ourselves. And I think there's a whole, you know, we've written about it before, but, you know, there's a whole load of things you know, colliding at the moment in really interesting ways. So, you know, the whole quiet quitting phenomenon, which has been written about repeatedly recently, there's a New York Times, I think, or a WSJ article talking about the different attitudes that incoming generations to the workforce have got about their work. So quiet quitting doesn't mean quitting. Quiet quitting means not investing your entire self in your job in terms of buying into the hustle culture of everybody's got to be on all the time. So I think it's a really interesting time right now. As predicted, you know, a global earth-changing event like a pandemic has thrown up all kinds of things and not necessarily the things that are most obvious about the pandemic. A lot of the things are about ourselves and the way we think about ourselves and in our domain, the way that we think about work. So I think it's a really interesting time right now. But yeah, the whole habit thing I think is interesting. But Sam Sperling's work on deliberate patterns is really interesting to reflect on. This idea of having a very distributed workforce in the past that's that's existed, but as we've come back together, certain elasticity of teams and groups, we pick up practices and different norms. How does this new phase we're in balance that universe? So how, how do the norms, and there could be a good element of this, by the way, of not being uh, daily, I guess, impacted by established norms in a work environment, in a physical environment, but what does that mean in this new world of work? Well, I think it depends, again, it depends who you are. So I think there's two kinds of people we can talk about here. You know, it's very easy to frame these discussions around knowledge workers. 
have always had a great deal of freedom about you know how they do their work. Their value is the knowledge they contribute to an organization. And then there's a whole bunch of people who are typically not considered in these discussions. So the people who come and wait on our tables and clean our rooms and do maintenance have often been ignored. And I think that's a really interesting phenomenon to think about that a lot of the discussion around these things, around the kind of changes has been framed around knowledge workers, and which is what we're doing too. I mean, we're trying to think more broadly, but inevitably the discussion flows back to them. But I guess what I see, certainly both in the work that we do and how we do our own work. So, you know, I refer to the space that we're in. We're largely experimenting on ourselves at the same time as thinking about what those experiments mean. So I think the nature of fluid and elastic teams operating semi-autonomously is really interesting. So I think, as I said, we're a team of seven or so portfolio workers who were we hired everybody that way on purpose and with the idea that we have to recognize and honor the fact that people have got all kinds of other commitments and their value is in what they bring to the table as individuals rather than that they just join a team. So we have a whole range of um, ways of working which are really quite unusual, but and they're not unusual because we're trying to prove a point. They're unusual because we're trying to experiment on ourselves. So we have a very fluid meeting schedule. I'm in the workspace I'm in today. Some people may come, some people may not. We've got two big Microsoft Surface hubs that give us a really great hybrid experience. So we don't really care where people are. It's irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant. And all meetings are hybrid by default in the university and certainly in our team. And so we're kind of experimenting with very different ways of thinking, not just about the kind of mechanics of work, but also what it means to have purpose in your work and what you commit to. So we are not particularly interested in a lot of the things that many workplaces are interested in, in in our team at Forward. We're really interested in having a thriving portfolio of ideas where people are individual contributors and we don't have to agree necessarily. What we have is a kind of framework where we trust each other enough to be able to consciously disagree and contribute and then move the work forward. But I think there's a really interesting disconnect between the kind of dialogue and the rhetoric around knowledge work and the majority of society, in fact, who don't have access to that kind of work and have got very different jobs. But inevitably, you know, the changes through the pandemic are going to roll and have rolled over everybody. There's a really interesting, of course, phenomenon going on right now that there's a huge and growing massive wave of discontent and strikes and, you know, all kinds of things. And I think that in itself is a really interesting phenomenon to look at too, you know, how those, you know, new return to the kind of industrial action we haven't seen probably for 50 years or so has been occasioned by the pandemic. And that's largely amongst groups of workers who have been threatened in many ways. And one of the ways they've been threatened, of course, is by the growth of technology. So to take an example, we've been talking about electric vehicles and the kind of skills change needed to transition uh, industries that were based on carbon-based forms of you know, transport through to EVs. And that, of course, those changes for an individual worker who's been doing this for a long time is very disconcerting, the idea you might need to completely reskill for a new technology. So all of this is going on at the same time, which I think it makes it you know, disconcerting at one level, but for anyone looking at this and thinking about it, tremendously fascinating. Fascinating is a, a very gentle way into something that could feel very complex at different times as well. As you were discussing those points, Peter, I was reflecting on work situations that I and many are part of, and that is we can think about wherever we do our work and producing an output, but collaboration brings a different level of complexity to it. And then there's collaboration amongst teams that we're a part of in our employment base but then there are external customers and external partners. And to give a very simplistic example to lead into asking your question, that is, if I am working in air quotes, uh, three days a week from the office, from the traditional office, and my customer is doing the same, are they the three? Or if it, is it three hours, is it three days, is it 20 hours? And are those 20 hours the same? 
and then you start to bring in collaborative partners, how does this all come together? That is a level of complexity that will be wrestled to the ground and is being wrestled to the ground, but it's almost a third dimension. How do you think about that? What are your considerations? Well, I think it's important to distinguish between synchronous and asynchronous work. So I think one of the things that we have learned in our own work and also thinking about how we work with other people is, you know, we need to rebalance the notion of what work is across those two domains. So a great deal of our work is asynchronous. So we tend to meet here infrequently, either hybrid or in person, although when we when we do, I think one of the effects is that if you don't meet as frequently, then you make the most of that time. It assumes a different character. But I think it's important to focus on the asynchronous work. And by that, I don't mean sending a bunch of emails. I think it's about one of the great things that's happened, I think, is, you know, out of the many terrible things that have happened during the pandemic is it's allowed us to really use some of the tools that were around in real anger. So we use Mirror Notion or two of our backbone tools. And so those things are constantly on for us. And they do have collaborative features. So on a Miro board, I'm sure folks will be familiar with Miro. You can track people in you know, in real time as they scoot around the board doing stuff. But actually having those stuff in on in the background as awareness tools creates a sense of asynchrony that tools like email, which I pretty much loathe one way or another, don't really allow us to do. So I think one of the answers to, to that is that, you know, focusing on the notion of synchronous and asynchronous work and how they tie together is really interesting. So we feel, I think, in here, and I certainly feel, not only on the RMIT project, but in other projects you know, around the world, that, you know, we have a real sense of connectedness because we really focus on what's best done in which domain, whether it's synchronous or asynchronous. And also, uh, I also think um, using those tools in a way that gives you, you know, a real sense of richness about, we spend a lot of time pruning and maintaining our information which you know, has gone on for a long time, but it's one of the other effects of focusing on the asynchronous domain is that you really need to you know, keep, that, keep the things, the kind of fuel that you need to be able to do the work. You need to really keep it in good shape. And so they're entirely new disciplines that I think people are only just learning. It was all too easy to, you know, watch a bunch of emails coming into your inbox and do something with them and put them on to-do lists. You know, that largely is a last century thing. Um, and now you really have to be much more aware about the way that you use those tools. I think it's back to, you know, as I mentioned before, Sam Sperling's deliberate patterns that you have to establish new patterns for your work that deliver the things that you want. I had a conversation just very recently on the podcast with uh, Natalie Marina, who is the CEO and co-founder of Noti.ai, a Ukrainian-based startup. Really interesting conversation. And they have this real-time transcription tool that would uh, take our conversation here and, and provide a whole lot of richness out of the back end of it. We started talking about the tool, and then we started to discuss what it could mean in terms of diversity and inclusion and coaching. And it wasn't just about the tools being able to make the meeting more efficient, which it does all of that. But all of a sudden, if we had, for example, if we turned this conversation into text, it would soon show in black and white whether I was speaking 95% of the time and you five or the language, there's no ambiguity there. Then we started to have a discussion around if that was the case and it becomes a very real, tangible coaching opportunity as well and learning opportunity for participants as to the way they actually do interact and how they behave and the type of language. And readability is something that we're familiar with from a text form. But all of a sudden, being able to have a readability discussion out of a meeting like this, it feels like there are some amazing opportunities to take advantage of as well. With your experiments, I'm curious to know, what have been some things you've done that have, have surprised you, either in the, the very positive or the in the surprising way? So, I mean, I think that's interesting that, you know, we use text transcription tools quite a lot. So we've started to publish our own podcast, which is based on 
people and things that we're interested in. And maybe you'll be on there very before too long, Tony, and we'll get to reverse the roles. But we provide text transcriptions through Otter AI is the tool that we use. There are many, of course. Um, and I think having that text record is really interesting because you can do things with it. Not only can you analyze it, in any number of ways, which I think is a really interesting prospect. So you can look at it in terms of not only who's speaking, but to drill down a bit with some of the text tools available into what they say and to do some semantic analysis, but also to be able to put it out into the world in a way that you know, speech isn't necessarily easy to consume. So to put bits of your transcript out in whichever channel you choose to put them out, whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter or whichever platform you use, I think that's a really interesting thing to do. And of course, they provide a constantly growing and updated repository of the kind of conversations that you've had. So I think those tools are really interesting, but you're right, they can provide all kinds of outputs. So, you know, it would be really interesting, although we don't record our own internal meetings, it would be really interesting, although we do kind of make extensive notes in our back end in Slack and Notion and other places, it would be really interesting to try and mine those for insights and opportunities that you write are about coaching or about mentoring and or about, you know, a genuine learning opportunity for other people in our ecosystem. I think one of the great things about those kind of tools is that it's now so easy to share stuff. It's not locked away behind some email firewall. We have to forward stuff. You know, we can make a Notion card available to anybody, any number of people randomly with different levels of permission instantly. And that's something that we use a lot. So those kind of experiments, you know, in an infrastructure, the university infrastructure runs on Microsoft, as many do, and that's okay. But in our own little group, we use tools like Notion, which where seat sharing is seamless and really highly efficient. It can just be turned on and off as we feel like it. So we regularly share Notion docs, working documents, or finished things with our colleagues in the college, and um, who and we've watched the effects of doing those things. So I think there's a whole range of you know opportunities that, that technology provides. But I mean, I guess it's not just about technology. The technology is interesting. I think it's about the spirit in which you do these things. So the notion of openly sharing, you know, as widely as possible is something that we're committed to here. So we, you know, within the bounds of any commercial confidentiality on a project, you know, we try and share as much as possible with the widest number of people on the basis that that will both help things change, but also bring us into contact with ideas and people that we haven't seen before, which, are, you know, I guess in the work that we do is of a massive advantage. Peter, I have so enjoyed the conversation today and we haven't even scratched the surface of, of what we could discuss, but I'm so glad that we had the chance to at least get our conversation on the podcast underway. So thank you. Could I ask you maybe just to close with a, a comment or a reflection or a thought around mentors and coaches and as you look into the work you're doing, what the changing face of mentors and coaches is starting to look like? So I think that so mentoring and coaching, of course, are two different things. We've got a, I've been an executive coach myself for a long time. So I've tried to improve my practice around that. Largely, I've coached C-suite executives. I think the coaching relationship is really interesting. I think a coach is something that everybody should have. And in fact, one of the programs that we're building here as part of Forward is a leadership program. And one of the elements is for aspiring leaders. And in fact, one of the elements is um, an experience of coaching to introduce people to some of the benefits of what that focused, concentrated discussion about your life and career can be. But of course, the mentoring thing is something that happens every day. So, you know, whilst I'm a, in the hierarchy of things, I'm the director of the center and the manager of the folks that work with me, actually the relationship is simultaneously coach and mentor all the time. And it's interesting to try and watch 
my colleagues also mentoring and coaching each other. So we've got a strong focus on wholeheartedly engaging in the work of others, not only to support them, but also to improve your own understanding and practice. And I think that's, you know, only going Im- to, that's only going to accelerate the idea that what we spend our time doing is, you know, I think it's back to the notion of productivity. What does productivity look like? We certainly know it's not about hours now, you know, arguably it's not even about projects. It's possibly about outcomes, but it may be in fact, one of the true lasting legacies of the pandemic and the way we work is that the future of work really is about coaching and mentoring rather than anything else. Fantastic place for us to wrap up today, Peter. Thanks so much for joining me. Look forward to speaking to you again very soon, but I appreciate your time today. My pleasure, Tony. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Feedback is always welcome. And I would appreciate introductions to potential future guests to invite onto the podcast. But that's it for today. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thank you.